Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Sixth of July, Wednesday. I sit on the bank, one leg hanging down. A drake mallard in eclipse treads water with slow, lazy strokes of his feet. He watches me. I watch him. We are both waiting for something. But what? I smile, but it means nothing to him. He softly chuckles, but I hear only sounds and intent, but not what that intention is. He could be Penny, a little soul staring at each move I make, trying to read me as I try to read him. Or the sheep in the neighbouring field, or the horses frozen on the dolphin-backed curve of the hill. And I want to tell him, it'll be all right. But we both know, it isn't. And that's the point, isn't it? Neither of us live in a world of fairy tale endings. We're just trying to find our ways in a crooked world. Not so that others will follow the paths we make, but that they may hear our voices. And our songs, you, duck and me, and know that they are not on their own. This is the Narrowboat Erica, narrowcasting to you on a summer's night from waters that are far from still. The moon is rounding into her second quarter and gilding the rippling water with silver. The bankside reeds are astir with the wind, but it's playful and benign. Bats whirl and flit around the ash tree canopies. It's good to see you. Thanks so much for coming. Come aboard. The kettle is singing and the seat is there all ready for you. Welcome aboard. Summer's long strides across the fields and the woodlands continue to cast the shadow of colour and noise and vibrancy. And the canal side is lined with sweet-smelling drifts of meadowsweet's frothy blossoms, perfuming the wind with the scent of summer wine. I love the local names of Meadowsweet. Vickery lists a number of them. Queen of the Meadow, Erethrift, Hayrif, May of the Meadow, Meadow Queen, Honeyflower, Sweet Hay. It's held by some to be a fatal flower if brought indoors. However, it was also commonly used to freshen the air and to mask smells. And Vickery includes an account that reads, 
1952 or 1953, a friend used to walk along the canal at Lapworth, near Solihull, in the summer, with a neighbour's daughter to gather meadow sweet to put in the toilets. The two houses built together had an outside toilet built over a stream. His aunts had two pedestals and a fireplace, although he never saw the fireplace being used. The meadow sweet was used to disguise the smell. Well, it certainly sweetens the air with its honey scent. And the towpath and the water's edges are now flaming with the pinks and the mauves and magentas of summer. Vetch, loosestrife, thistle, campion, mallow. And just down from here, an enormous burdock is sprouting, a huge fountain of green, all spikes and elephant ears. And the berries are appearing too, still green and hard as a ball bearings, but telltale signs of seasons turning, elderberry and blackthorn slow. And it looks like it might be a good year for slow, around here at least. And the sun this week continues to play hide-and-seek behind clouds that roar and race overhead. At times the sky darkens with a frown of rain, but very little has come. Sunshine and black skies cast the most beautiful of lights that can make me feel so alive. And today a northerly wind blustered and barreled down the hillside, and the canal has been busy with boats as the season has begun to get underway in earnest. And it's nice to see such a lot of movement on the waters. Thank you to all of you who sent in your well wishes for us. And thank you, we are feeling a lot better this week. And... Hello and thank you to Sean James Cameron for using the voicemail. It was lovely to hear your voice and you have a wonderful speaking voice, Sean. And it's great to hear that you are growing your own food on the allotment in London. And I, I totally understand how time consuming that's going to be. But hopefully you will one day get onto the canals and experience the life here. So thank you, Sean. And also, speaking of voicemails, it was really brilliant to receive a message from a little further afield from some ham radio enthusiasts. And although I've never actually done any, I've always been fascinated by the world of ham radio. So thank you so much, David. I really appreciate the way you've reached out and it was lovely to hear from you. David lives in Ohio and his friends, Al, who lives on an island in southeast Maine, and John, who lives in central Maine. I love that image of you traveling the world at the speed of light as I travel the waterways at three or four miles an hour. And I'm so pleased that you enjoyed the podcast. And what you're doing is right at the heart of Nighttime on Still Waters, of reaching out with your voice across the world. So brilliant. Thank you so much for contacting me, David. And hello and thank you to Margaret. And I really love those pictures that you took of 
the Starburst Flowers. What a wonderful name and so appropriate. And I can see how they must brighten up even the most darkest of days. And hello also to new listener Rick Wilson from Alabama. And thank you so much for your kind words. And it was also lovely to hear back from Lee Thomas, who you might remember was telling us a few weeks back, I think it was about the 1st of June, about the fall of snow that she had where she lives 8,000 feet up on the, in the Colorado mountains. And I'm really glad you enjoyed the Wind in the Willows, Lee. And yeah, Toad can take quite some getting used to. He's quite a character, isn't he? And I do hope you manage to find a copy of The Flower of Gloucester. I, I'm sure that you really enjoy it. It's a beautifully written book. Have you heard the old story of the herring and the fisherman? I ask because it's a good example of how myths work. And what's more, why we need them? I first came across it, revised and recast in part, in the writer and psychologist Sharon Blackie's wonderful book of mythic tales, Foxfire, Wolfskin and other stories of shape-shifting women. And having first read it, I cannot shake it from my head. So I think tonight I'll tell it to you. Not as I read it there, but as having it now rooted within me, that I now know it. And it goes like this. <laughs> many, many winters ago, when the days still spun to the turning of the tides and the rise of the dawn and the fall of the dusk, there was a fisherman. And he lived with his nets and his creels that stank of fish and seaweed and the cold touch of deep waters. And he lived close to those waters and could read their glassy light. And the sound of the breakers foaming on the bar was music to his ears. He was a man who knew the sea's running and the colour of it. It could never be said that he was a bad man, but neither was he a good man. He was just a man, and he was contented with that. And he lived his life the best way that he knew how, and his life was hard as a life lived from the waves and the stony land is hard, and it calloused his hands and many times made them roar to the sting of icy brine. And he lived alone just as he liked it. Not for him the companionship of a wife or the vivacity of children. And even dogs and cats were really only tolerated but never welcomed, and none ever stayed in his sturdy dark stone house that crouched beside the sea-sucked shingle harbour bay. Like most houses at this time, it was built with its back to the sea and the flailing catanine westerlies that whipped their ocean spray onto the land. But his upstairs leeward window was always open. So, even in his sleep, he could catch the sound of the Atlantic voice of sea-swell and wind-song that told him if the day would be good 
or his storms are on the way. His was the world and law of storm petrels and selkies. His life depended on them, and in that he was, for the most part, content. And so his days and nights were moulded and folded around the rise and fall of the tide, taking to his boat whenever he could to harvest a meagre livelihood from whatever he could catch within his nets. And this was his lot in life, and he neither complained or questioned it. But he knew the joy of sitting in the sun with the weed-strewn nets over his knees, mending their tears, or bending new osiers into the creels to stop the gaps. And then, one day, as the sea fret was just beginning to lift, he pushed his boat out onto the water and rode off to the bar. His fellow fishermen stood on the sea's such shingles with their boats still pulled up from the ocean's maul. There was to be no fishing for them today. The fret had fallen all wrongly on the coastline, and the light and the scent in the air was wrong, and they were nervous. And they watched the fishermen row with the practised rhythm on the slabby waters in silence, until he was dissolved into the fog. There would be hell to pay for some of them when they returned to their houses. For others, the greetings would be warmer, the fireside kettle replenished. And the younger ones climbed the slow, shrouded hill, past the black stone chapel of the god that died every Sunday in a cup of wine and a bite of bread, and who made hell shiver, and on to the sailor's arms, the only bar on the island, a small room of unlined stone, and whose fire crackled green with salt and spat shanties and wicked rum into the foggy air. Each was uneasy. Should they have gone? Were they right to stay? Such thoughts can settle on a person's shoulders like the wet, heavy sacking on the shoulders of a downland shepherd. And even the younger lads were pensive and restless. And our fisherman, with no thought but the dancing beads of mist on his beard and eyebrows, rode on, over the swell of the bar, and the tumultuous surge of water that was as white as the manes of the wild ponies, high on the moorland of Stranach Bay. On he rode, into that strange and listless quiet. And after twenty minutes or so, but it could have been more, he shipped his oars off their rollocks, wiped his forehead with his briny sleeve, tasting the salt of sweat and sea on his lips, refilled his pipe and cast out his net. And the fret lifted and fell, lifted and fell, never going completely away, but never coming completely back. It was a silver kind of day. It could be said that this was a liminal kind of day, a day between two worlds, neither night nor day, for a man who was neither good nor bad. 
Perhaps we could say this was a mythopaic day. A day when boundaries shift and become permeable. A day when we see the reality of things as they really are. But of course, the fisherman who caught in this story, and therefore not able to take such a reflective long view, was unaware of this. All he saw were the dancing curtains of the fret, and the dull glow in the bowl of his pipe. And all he heard was the lap, lap, lapping of the water against the wooden hull and a ghost call of the gulls far off. All day the fisherman cast his nets and waited. All day the nets remained as flat, as restless and as empty as this shifting silvered day. He smoked three pipes, and the boat truculently bobbed on the lapping ocean swell. And one last time the net went in. One last time the fisherman settled back into the boat, lying on the bottom on a tangle of unused nets, his back resting against the bench upon which he rode and waited. The ghost gulls continued to call with the voices of his old lost friends and his ancestors. And still he waited. A fisherman's life is a patient one. One that knows the value of waiting. One that knows where the mind and soul goes in those long periods of inactivity. And gradually darkness began to slowly pool across the east, and the fret began once more to slowly lift. When he dragged the heavy net in for the last time, he knew from its feel that this time would be like all the others that day, and that it would be empty. Never had there been such a wasted, empty day. The other fishermen were right not to drag their boats into the waves, playing on the sea-sucked shingle. Not because, as they thought, something bad and evil would happen, but because nothing would happen. He thought, without bitterness or regret, of his colleagues, dry and warm beside their fires, or in the fug of the sailors' arms, spitting and drinking whisky and calling down the gods of youth. The netting coiled and fell like cake batter into the boat. The scent of the sea, weed-wrapped and deep places, stung his nostrils, familiar and welcoming. And with the last of the net aboard, the fisherman looked down, and there, as if it were a flash of lightning, lay a solitary herring. She wasn't a big herring, but neither was she a small one either. And she didn't have magical powers, but that's what you were thinking. She couldn't speak or anything like that. And she wasn't a good herring, or a bad one. She was just a herring. 
But, so the story goes, there was just this one thing about it. She was a nice-looking herring. The sort of herring that one might say on spotting her, now that's a nice-looking herring. And because of it, she took the fisherman's fancy. And rather than throwing her back into the sea, and she was too good for that, and although not really big enough for a main meal, would certainly make a good accompaniment to one. And anyway, a fisherman's life is such that beggars cannot be choosers. And so the fisherman lifted up the oars, placed them back into the rollocks that creaked and groaned with every stroke, and headed back to the shoreline, with its grey bank of sea-sucked shingle and the row of sturdy dark stone houses and the black stone chapel of the god who died weakly on its slow shrouded hill and the fuggy bar of the sailor's arms. And the story goes that when the fisherman got back, dragging his boat out of the ocean's mall and stood in his kitchen, that he noticed how fine the herring looked. In fact, it struck him that she was so fine and beautiful that he would pop her into the breast pocket of his salt-whitened jacket to keep her safe and warm. As you would imagine, the herring was not entirely happy with this turn of events, and she flapped and struggled and struggled and flapped. She was, as they say, a fish out of water. But the impulse for life is strong in all of us, and that includes all herrings, and especially those that have been caught in the sea mists of a liminal mythopoeic day. And so, trapped in the fisherman's breast pocket, she gasped and panted and gulped and rasped until, strange as it is to say, she managed to find a way to capture precious oxygen and absorb it into her body, bypassing her by now superfluous gills. Well, time went by, and as that time went by, the fisherman grew fonder and fonder of the little herring, and he carried her everywhere. He fed her, protected her, kept her warm on the bleak days of ice and cool on the sunny days of high summer. He talked to her, and on Friday nights, returning from the Cayleys at the Sailor's Arms, he would sing to her fisherman's shanties of high seas and hardship, rolling surf and nights filled with the constellations of stars and starfish. And when he was feeling particularly maudlin, he would sing the sad old songs of lovers parted from heart and land. And the people laughed, but accepted the fisherman's strange behaviour. Now, you might want to stop me and say that this is all a bit hard to believe, but I'm just telling you what I heard. That the herring could live, apparently, quite happily, in the fisherman's breast pocket, raised very few comments or surprise amongst the community in which he lived. Perhaps, and I just posit this as a suggestion, it didn't strike them as strange because they lived a lot closer to the earth and the sea than we do, and so understood that these things can happen on liminal, mythopoeic days of shifting silvers. 
But what they did find a little strange was how fond the fishermen had become of the little herring. But nevertheless, they were generally a good group of people, and recognised that perhaps a man who lived alone without a companion, human or otherwise, can become lonely, and that it is right that their spirits reach out to another living spirit. But whatever the case, it is said that the herring and the fisherman lived companionably together for quite a while. And if there were nights that the fish heard the whisper of tidal streams among the sea-rack, and if she at times knew the secret ache to feel water on her skin once more, and if her dreams were filled with a longing for the twist of movement from the flick of her tail, we are not told of it. And now comes the part of the story that's the important bit. One Friday night, the Cayley at the sailor's arms was particularly rowdy and energetic. Drink was drunk, tales were told, songs were sung, dances were danced, lovers wooed, and the rafters of the little unlined stone rang. It was a glorious night of revelry and unrestrained carousing, and the fishermen, like everyone else, got quite merry and inebriated. At a quarter past eleven, he cleared his throat, gently tucked the little herring protectively inside his breast pocket, and announced to all that he was calling this merry night a day. And he left. Now it was a nice night. A swelling moon, rich and buttery, paved her silvery path over land and ocean. And so, rather than going over the slow-shrouded hill and down past the dark stone chapel, he decided to walk around the point along the shoreline. At first it was easy going. The moon was strong and the way familiar to him. And the air was filled with the soft susurrations of the sea-sucked shingle and the fisherman felt that he was walking in some enchanted fairyland. As he continued around the point, the moon dipped behind a cheeky cloud, and the night got dark. Now, this wasn't a problem, as the fisherman, like all fishermen at this time, knew the shoreline better than his own living room at home. But being tipsy and also night-blind, what he didn't see was a large tree trunk that had been blown up the bank of the sea-sucked shingle by an earlier storm, and his foot caught an angle of the branch. Snagged, he tipped forward, sprawling head first toward the sea. The herring, jolted free from the pocket, slipped back into the sea, her home at last, and drowned. Old stories speak to us. Lift an unfamiliar mirror up to our lives and we see ourselves anew in them as we really are. And when I first read this, all I could think of is that's us, isn't it? That little herring 
We are here, so many of us, living lives we know and feel deep down that cannot sustain us. That we live as a people who are as fishes living out of water. And we've learned to survive, and because we can survive, we have taught ourselves that we need to accept that this is the only way to live. And we have built our culture and our stories and our narratives and our modern myths that we live by on the claim that this is reality. This is the way the world is, and anything else is just fairy tales and sentiment. That this is how things are and have always been. For we have convinced ourselves for so long that this is what life is, that this is the only way to live, and the only way we can live and there is no other, and that to question it, to challenge it, to ask the big why is an absurdity to us, as ridiculous as asking why the night is dark or water wet. And yet... So many of us hear that wilder, untamed call back to our natural environments and ways of life to which we are born and formed. And we know deep, deep down that this is not born from some sentimental misconception. For there is a deep and uneasy feeling that we, as humans, are not and have never been suited to the great cultures that we have created and the values that it espouses. That this is not our natural world. And that this is why we can never feel at home, at one here. That this life will not sustain us, for it's not our natural state. The pocketed herring had convinced herself that her dried small world was not just natural but the only natural state in which she can live, and is it not surprising that when she's plunged back into her natural environment she no longer knows how to live in it, and her true natural element has become alien to her. And like her, we have learnt to accept the small, dried-up existence that is devoid of and denies all the very things that are essential to our beings. But also, there are those moments that we know so well when we say, surely life is more than existence. A yearning not just to survive, but to flourish, to live wild and free and unencumbered in our natural elements. But when we try to return, we find too that we have become so alienated, so distanced from it, that it too no longer feels like our home, but somewhere dangerous and unknown. And we do not know how to deal with the brute realities of life here. And in that sense, the critics are right. We have become so detached that we are not ready for our return for we've been so long away from our true home that we can no longer read it or understand it. We know it only through the dream songs of our hopes. The sea of the herring sings of freedom and life, but it also contains harsher songs of threat 
and hidden currents of danger. When we come face to face with what Aldous Huxley calls the yoga of horror, the confrontation and acknowledgement of terror and horror in a world, not just the beautiful and the affirming, the yoga of Jonah, the yoga of Job, we feel as if we are drowning in a world to which we do not belong. Nature is not Instagram safe. The wild is beautiful and inspiring in books, but not when pinched flailing and screaming between the beak of a herring gull with the cries of a mallard desperately trying to rescue her chick, but unable to keep up with the strong gull wings, and so she is forced to turn back. And at those times, we feel we will drown and do not know what to do. And yet... It comes to us, doesn't it? That feeling that we are fish out of water. That this way of our living is not natural and cannot sustain who we really are. That life is more than the gasped breaths of a survival. That this is in some way unnatural and will never sustain us and we can never flourish here like this. And one day we might find ourselves tipped back into the great seas of our rooted beginnings, and at first it will feel alien, as if we were unable to survive, as if the brute realities of it will kill us. But we will find our gills. You see, the thing about myths is that their endings can always be rewritten. And right now, we need to begin to do just that and rewrite the end of our mythic narratives. This is the Narrowboat 506812, the Erica, signing off for the night. And may your night be filled with new dreams and songs to strengthen your days. Have a wonderful, restful, and peaceful night. Good night. Temperature outside, 16.2 degrees. Inside, 20 degrees. Humidity, 52%. Dew point, 11 degrees. Wind direction, north-northwest. Wind strength, 10 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1,030.8 rising Cloud cover 9% Cloud ceiling None Precipitation Nil Moon phase 58.5% Waxing gibbous 
day length, 16 hours 34 minutes. Sunset, 21-29. Skycasting, 4-56.